No one could question Paul's standard of commitment to the law. No one could look at Paul and say, oh, he's a hypocrite, he's a drunk, he's an adulterer, he's a coveter. No, he was blameless in his application of the law. He was at the top of his class as Judaism would have judged him. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are studying the book of Romans, and in chapter 3, we are looking at the righteousness of God. We have so far seen that God's righteousness was revealed through the law, through the Ten Commandments, which called men to holy living. As we pick up today, Pastor Brogy notes that the righteousness of God is also revealed apart from the law. God's righteousness is apart from the law. And so having left us very desperate and depressed, he moves from the bad news to the good news with these words, but now. In essence, Paul is saying, since I've established that everyone needs to hear and appropriate the gospel, let me explain it in great detail. The Bible is crystal clear that if you are going to go to heaven, you need the righteousness of God. You must be as holy and as righteous as God himself. And so Paul is going to explain and expound precisely what the righteousness of God is. And first, he reminds us that it cannot be obtained by human effort. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness that we need, Paul says... It's apart from the law. It's apart from your keeping the Ten Commandments. It is apart from your uh, following the golden rule. It is apart from any effort or anything that you can do. You cannot dig deep into your pockets and pull out righteousness and say, Oh yes, God, I am okay. Now that's what the average man on the street thinks. He thinks that somehow if in the end the good outweighs the bad, that he will be acceptable and righteous in God's sight. But Paul wants to make it very clear that if you are going to go to heaven, you need the righteousness of God. And it's a different kind of righteousness than anything that you can obtain or earn through your own human efforts. Now let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let's see an illustration of this truth from the Bible itself. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to the right to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, Philippians 3. Four little books, they're easy to get mixed up or confused in the order. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. I always remembered it, go everywhere preaching Christ. Or some said the great electric power company or a guy in my Bible study 35 years ago who brought the popcorn every week, his name was Gary, he said Gary eats popcorn. That's how he remembered it. Well, however you can remember it, learn it. In Philippians 3, Paul is dealing with a group of men known as Judaizers. Judaizers were Jewish men who taught and thought that man somehow, through self-effort, could help save himself. And so if you look in chapter 3, in verse 1, notice what he writes. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard to you. And that's true with all repetition in Bible teaching. 
When I repeat myself, I do it because Christ modeled it. The epistles command it. And it's to your benefit, to my benefit, because it puts the truth that much deeper in your heart and it safeguards you from error. Then in verse 2, he gives a strong word of warning. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. He's addressing Jews primarily in mind here because they were the dominant religion that were in opposition to Paul's teaching into his public ministry. Most Jews believe that they, being Jewish, as the people of God, somehow had a favored status before God and a guaranteed place in heaven. In the proof that they were the people of God and they had this guaranteed status was a little mark in their body known as circumcision. Now we've already studied at the end of Romans 2 how Paul blasts that concept out of the water. We saw in our theology of circumcision that it was an external mark on the body revealing the need for a deep and total cleansing and forgiveness of sin. But in Paul's day, amongst the Jews, it had just become a tribal tattoo. And so he says here, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, beware of the dogs. We've all seen that sign because dogs can bark and they can bite. Well, Paul is describing these Judaizers who taught that circumcision was part of God's package in saving you. He describes them as dogs. He turns the phrase upside down because typically by the Jews, the term dog was a reference to the Gentiles. Jesus even uses it that way. But here Paul is saying that it's not the Gentiles who are the dogs. In this case, it's these Jewish false teachers who are the dogs. He's saying you watch out for those dogs because they can be mean and they can hurt Listen, everyone in religion is not kind. Some of the most meanest people in this world are religious people. Beware of the dogs. Verse 3, for we, by contrast, are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In verse 3, Paul describes true believers in Jewish terms. He says, we are the true circumcision. Why? Because we, be you Jew or Gentile, male or female, have had circumcision of the heart. That's what we studied at the end of chapter 2 and verse 29. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Messiah, if you've put your full confidence in his death, burial, and resurrection to save you, then you are a member of the true circumcision. Why? Because true circumcision is of the heart. Circumcision under the old covenant, un under the old deal, was in the flesh. But the true circumcision is of the Spirit. What circumcision was for the Old Testament symbolically, true circumcision by the Spirit is in reality what that foreshadowed. We are members of a new covenant. And so when we trust Jesus as Savior... As it's pictured in baptism, as we saw with a number of people baptized today, when one is immersed, for that is literally what the word to baptize means, it means first and primarily to immerse, secondarily it means a Greek to identify, but one, one is immersed, brought under the water and up again, they're confessing their hope in the death, 
burial, and resurrection of Christ. And when you believe on Christ, God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. You become a temple of the Spirit. Are you a temple of the Spirit today? If you are not and you die or Jesus returns, you will spend an eternity without him. Being born again is not some optional form of Christianity for a select few fanatics. Being born again, Jesus said, is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. And if you've been born again, then you are true of the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God. Now, the Judaizers thought they had a corner in the market when it comes to worship. But God reveals that true worshipers worship in the Spirit. That's what Jesus said. God is Spirit, and the people who worship Him must worship Him in Spirit and in truth. Paul's saying, we're not dogs. We're not evil workers. We're not of the false circumcision. We are the true circumcision. We glorify Christ by what he did. We put no confidence in the flesh, and because we've been born twice, we worship in the Spirit. And so he's making a contrast here between the true and the false. And the New Testament repeatedly does that between what is real and what is not. They have their mark. We have our mark. The mark of the Old Testament was circumcision. The mark of the New Testament is the Spirit of God. Now, look verse 4. He wants to expose their false confidence, their false uh, righteousness. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So what is he doing? He's meeting these Judaizers on their own turf. And like so many people today who think they can earn a righteousness before God, Paul blows the concept out of the water. I mean, if any man, if any Jew could earn a righteousness, it was the Apostle Paul. He understood these men. He sat where they sat. He thought where they, what they thought until he met Christ, until he had that experience in the Damascus Road when his eyes was op were opened. And he says, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh... I far more. Now Paul speaks passionately because he knows how worthless the flesh is. How worthless our righteousness is when it comes to salvation. Now the phrase in the flesh again contextually refers to the rite of circumcision. But Paul broadens it theologically to refer to any act that man may do. When we come to Romans 8, he will say, For I know that in my flesh no good thing dwells. Because you are fallen and you have a sinful nature, your good deeds, when done out of a fallen Adamic nature, is, are polluted. And so God's way of keeping score is far different from ours. Man has a righteousness that he tries to earn. Paul will show us God has a righteousness that you must receive. And so some people think, well, look, uh, I'm not that bad. Certainly God will receive me. It's like a boat chained to a dock. You know, all you need to do is break one link on that chain. And the boat will float down the river and it could head towards a waterfall. Now, it doesn't matter if you break one link or you break every link in the chain. The end disaster is the same. We look at some people and they've broken every link on the chain and we call them adulterers and murderers and criminals and we put them in prison. And then we look at other people who have only broken a single link. And we think, well, by comparison, they are not that bad. 
But God says in the epistle of James, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. If you had obeyed every single commandment of God and you broke just one commandment, you would be equally guilty. And so he is going to say at the end of verse 22, there's no distinction. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, a big sinner or a small sinner, we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And so Paul illustrates from his own life with seven achievements, the first three that he inherited. Notice verse 5, he says, circumcised the eighth day. Now remember, Judaizers said that circumcision was part of the plan to get you into heaven. They said, yes, Jesus died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, but that's not enough. You have to add something to it, namely circumcision. And Paul in Galatians will say that is a different gospel, another gospel, a false gospel, and it will damn you if you add a single work to the salvation by grace through faith gospel. But Paul, unlike many Judaizers, had been circumcised on the eighth day. His parents were not negligent. His parents took seriously the Mosaic law, and on the eighth day, he was indeed circumcised. Then he adds, of the nation of Israel. What's he saying there? He's saying, I'm not a Jew by conversion. There were Gentiles that the book of Ezra said became Jews. How could a Gentile become a Jew? Religiously, not ethnically. Paul is saying, listen, I am a pure-blooded Jew. I am born of Jewish parents. And as an Israelite member, he could claim to be a part of God's chosen people. But as we've already seen, while being Jewish does not automatically save you, it is nonetheless a privilege to be from that race of people. We lived in uh, Texas for five years. And when we got to Texas in the mid-1980s, there was a very popular bumper sticker at the time. I don't know, Grant, if it's still there, but it said Native Texan. And other people on the back of their car would put the sticker, I got here, meaning to Texas, as quick as I could. The transplants would put that there. Now, it's one thing to be a Texan. It's quite another thing to be a Native Texan. It's one thing to be a Jew. It's quite another thing to be a native Jew. Paul says, I was born that way. But he will still show that it's not an issue of race. It's an issue of grace. So he adds, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin is the tribe that gave Israel its first king, Saul. And it is very often mentioned favorably in the scripture. And so to be from that tribe was a source of pride. If you remember when the kingdom split into ten northern tribes and two southern tribes, only the tribe of Benjamin hung on to the tribe of Judah. The other ten tribes established another place of worship called Samaria which Jesus confronted when he met the Samaritan woman in John 4. And what they did in Samaria was in direct contradiction and violation of Leviticus 17, where God said, you're to worship in Jerusalem at my temple where I've caused my name to dwell. And the tribe of Benjamin hung to that and they obeyed it. So Paul says, listen, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He took pride in his ancestry, and many of you do. Some of you are Asian, some of you are African, some of you are from European descent. 
Uh, myself, I'm three quarters Irish and one quarter Italian. My mother's parents were from Ireland, my dad's parents, one from Italy and another from Ireland, making me three quarters in one. Now, in Worcester, Massachusetts, by the way, my, my name comes from my grandfather on my father's side, who is from Italy. And it should be pronounced Brogy. But we lived in a section of New England that was largely Irish Catholic. My dad was an ophthalmologist. In those days, doctors could not advertise. It was against the law to advertise as a physician. And so my dad anglicized the name. He called himself Dick Brogy instead of Dick Brogy. Why? He wanted to draw in those Irish Catholics into his, in, into his practice. Now my sons, two of them, Jeremy and Grant, were at a Christmas party in Washington, D.C., and uh, they had the opportunity to meet Justice Scalia. And Grant went up and shook his hand, and he said, Grant Brogy, Milan. Oh, Scalia loved it. Then uh, Jeremy, not knowing what his brother Grant had done, came up about 10 minutes later, stuck out his hand, Jeremy Brogy, Florence. He didn't know where we were from, but Scalia picked up on it. He, this is what Paul's doing. He's taking pride in a sense of his ancestry. Circumcised the eighth day, just as Moses specified. A true Jew of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Then he adds a Hebrew of Hebrews. So now he is moving from the traits which he had inherited to the traits which he had earned. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Now remember, where was Saul from? Saul of Tarsus. It's a city in Asia Minor. And unlike many Jews who were scattered during the diaspora, who lost their ability to speak Hebrew, who became unfamiliar with the Hebrew customs, Paul held to the traditions. His native language was Hebrew. Unlike the Jews in Acts 6, who were Hellenized Jews, who spoke Greek, who understood more about Greek culture than they did Jews. Jewish culture. Paul understood Jewish culture. When I was a boy growing up and you wanted to describe someone deeply committed in the church I was raised, you would say, he or she is more Catholic than the Pope. That's the thought here. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Jew's Jews. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation is Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Notice next, as to the law, a Pharisee. Unlike the Sadducees, who had a low view of the law, who only believed the first five books of the Old Testament were inspired, and even then they took a very loose view of the Scriptures, they were the liberals of the day, Paul was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees believed the whole of the Old Testament to be the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Of course, the problem with the Pharisees in the first century is they added their traditions to the Scripture, and in the process, they often invalidated the Scripture. And so the Lord Jesus in the Gospels repudiated their method of adding to the Scriptures, and he called them hypocrites. But Paul, having, been raised a fair, uh, having become a Pharisee, would have venerated the Scriptures. He would have tithed his income. He would have prayed. He would have fasted. He would have followed the traditions. Now, not every Jew was a Pharisee. There's several million Jews at the time when Paul is penning his letter. And out of the several million Jews, there's only 6,000 who are given the status of being a Pharisee. 
It's not an Old Testament thing. It's something that arose, this group of men, between the two Testaments. And so Paul, when he looked at these Judaizers who trusted in the flesh, in their own works, in their circumcision, he said, I'm not just any Jew. I'm a Pharisaic Jew. And then he adds, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. I'm not just a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee with zeal. And this zeal can be seen in the fact that I have persecuted Christians. He was so zealous, so zealous for the things, what he believed to be true, he persecuted those who did not agree with his interpretation. And so when Paul describes himself, or excuse me, when Luke describes him in Acts 8, he says that Paul ravaged the church of God like a wild beast. When Paul describes himself before King Agrippa, he says, And as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, these believers, even to foreign cities. And so if Judaizers could take pride in their zeal, Paul far more. Would they persecute the Christians like Paul? Not on the same level. Paul was unique. He was hated and he hated Christians. So Paul says, you want to see a zeal for the law? I've got it. Been there, done it far more than you ever did. Now religious people can be mean. And Paul, before he was saved, was mean. I heard the story of a little boy who killed a mouse. And he came running into the house. He says, Mama, look, I, I beat this mouse with a broomstick. And then I ran over him with my bike. And then I stomped on him. And about that time, he saw the pastor come into the room listening. But then Jesus called him home to be with himself. <laughs> that's what religion does. It's very often mean. And that's the way Paul was. As to zeal, a persecutor, as to righteousness, which is in the law... Notice, found blameless, not sinless. No Judaizer would have believed that anyone was sinless, but blameless, and there was a difference. In the broad sense of Jewish tradition as observed in his life, he would be found blameless. No one could question Paul's standard of commitment to the law. No one could look at Paul and say, oh, he's a hypocrite, he's a drunk, he's an adulterer, he's a coveter. No, he was blameless in his application of the law. He was at the top of his class as Judaism would have judged him. So what is he doing? He's describing his pre-conversion state here. But there came a day when Paul had an awakening. And there on that Damascus road, when he had a glimpse of God Almighty and all of his holiness... He saw that his righteousness was as a filthy rag. And so he will say in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Having placed all of his assets on one side of the scale, things the Judaizers would have loved, and he picked up all those treasured gains, and when he looks at Christ, he said, I count them as a loss. Those things that he once greatly venerated, he saw as a loss. And his conversion turned his life upside down. So he says in verse 8, more than that. That's an important phrase because he's drawing a contrast here between the religious credits that he had and knowing the Lord. More than that, I count all things 
to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Did you get that? Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And the word here for know is a word of intimacy. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, it's the same word that is used when it says Adam knew Eve. And God uses that word in the New Testament to describe the personal, intimate relationship that a person can have in knowing the Lord. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 17 when he says eternal life is knowing God and Christ whom you have sent. Millions and millions of Americans today know many facts. They know that Jesus is God the Son, that he died on the cross, that he was risen from the dead. And so because they know those facts, they think they know God. James 2.19 describes demons and their knowledge that they have a very orthodox belief as it comes down to the nature of God. Even in one gospel passage when a demon speaks, the demon says, you, Jesus of Nazareth, you are the Holy One of God. It's an accurate confession. In fact, very often when demons speak in the Acts of the Gospels, they speak absolute truth, fantastic theology. And some people think because they have a good theology, they know the Lord. But you can know the facts without knowing the living God. And so Paul says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. All the awesome privileges I have, I count them but skabala, not hamgala, but skabala, rubbish, dung, filth. Now, I know we've got evangelical pastors, and I hope you're listening because some of you are going to leave Buford, and you're going to go to some other city, and now it has become more and more fashionable for evangelical pastors to be all things to all men, to swear in the pulpit. We have a leader in South Carolina who does that, who pastors one of the largest churches. He curses in the pulpit, and they use this text of Scripture to justify it. Listen, just because a man says he's evangelical doesn't mean that he is. And you cannot justify swearing in the scripture. Paul's point is, listen, all those things that I thought were precious, when I compare it to knowing Jesus Christ, it's waste, it's dung, it's refuge, it's rubbish, it's worthless trash, depending on your translation. He had an utter disdain for all those things that he thought could make him righteous in God's sight. Now think of verse 9 in light of the verse we're trying to illustrate. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I hope that's in your heart today. I hope that in your heart today that you are not trying to establish your own righteousness that you can achieve by the things you do, but you will receive that righteousness that is not based on the law, but is given as a gift when you come in faith through Jesus Christ. For a copy of today's study from Romans chapter 3 entitled, The Righteousness of God, 
visit our website at searchthescriptures.org and search for program ROM12. You can also listen to this or any of Dr. Brogy's messages on our Search the Scriptures app, available through the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. Of course, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 and simply request a CD or DVD copy of whatever message you like. However you contact us, please consider a financial gift to help sustain this teaching ministry. Your support allows us to purchase time on radio stations as well as providing us the means to be heard all over the world through the Internet. Just call 877-787-7478 and ask about making a single gift or about becoming a monthly foundation supporter. Thank you. Tomorrow we conclude our look at the righteousness of God. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.